Father, thank you so much that we do have the opportunity to study in your word. I was reminded yet again this week, Father, that there are so many who gather in your name on this Sunday who have walked into a fellowship, have sat down, Father, and desiring to meet you, have been presented with something else besides you and besides your word. Father, how thankful we are that uh, that's not the case here. How thankful we are, Father, that your word is the thing we desire the most. It is the way, Father, we have come to know you, and so it is also the way that we will become like you. I praise you, the Lord, for that, that gift, the gift of your word. May we honor that gift, Father, with our time and our attention, and in the weeks to come, Father, our obedience to it. Let the words we speak this morning, Father, be according to your will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that this time would not be of our own making, but of yours, not for our own glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you remember, it's been two weeks since Luke, but we were in chapter 4. We finished chapter 4. We're now in chapter 5. Jesus is in chapter 4 and earlier been moving around in the sea, in the land around the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons we've seen him doing on occasion and all the while declaring the kingdom of God. And then at the end of chapter 4, we saw Luke enter into the home of Peter. If you remember at the end of chapter 4, Peter's mother-in-law was sick with fever and so Jesus came in in the, in the house where Peter himself and his brother Andrew were also told that James and John were there. And as Jesus has been teaching As you might expect, he's begun to attract crowds. He's begun to attract followers who want to go with him everywhere he goes. But these crowds don't all have exactly the same desire. You could put it this way. The crowds have the good, those who are there because they want to hear the teaching, because they know who Christ is. And of course they have the bad as well. They have those who have come along really just for the spectacle of it all, maybe just to see some entertainment. And then you have the ugly. You have those who are there really just to tear down what Christ is doing, to find ways to criticize Him or to accuse Him. So the good, the bad, and the ugly are following wherever He goes. And as Jesus goes, He's intent on gathering to Himself a specific few for ministry and training them up for a ministry that will follow His death. So we'll begin to see some of that today as well. But in chapter 5, we'll begin again with how we ended last week, really. Jesus moving around, teaching healing and doing miracles. And at the beginning here of chapter 5, we'll we'll start reading in verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish that had been taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Okay, let me set the scene for you a little bit here. Remember, Jesus, as we've said already, has been in the land of Galilee for some time. He's been moving back and forth between many of the cities that make up this small region on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And in the story today, he's in a place called the Plain of Gennesaret. It's an area to the northwest of this sea, this lake, really, of Galilee. And on the northwest shore of the lake is a town in this Plain of Gennesaret that gets its name from the plain. And in Gennesaret, it's probably early morning, right after sunrise. The men typically went out fishing on the lake in the evening, partly to escape the heat and partly because that was a better time to find the fish feeding. So at this point, it's still still. It's cool in the morning. There hasn't been enough time yet for the sun to really start to produce the heat that is typical in this part of the world in the daytime. And so the men, before it gets hot, are finishing up their day's work. They're on the shore. Their boat's coming in now, having been brought up onto the land, and they're mending nets. They're doing the the basic work of fishermen. And then Jesus begins to approach. He's walked probably out from the town itself to this to this area on the shore of the Galilee. And you have to kind of imagine the scene from the perspective of the fishermen. They're probably kneeling or sitting on the ground with their nets, and they look up and they see Jesus approaching. And with him they see this crowd. Because by now Jesus' notoriety had spread, at least within this region of Galilee, to the point that wherever he went, he had followers. You know, we call them groupies today. He had people who were going to attend wherever he attended. They were going to follow wherever he went. Now remember, the last time we saw Jesus was in the city of Capernaum, teaching the Word, teaching two families, establishing the authority of his ministry on the basis of the power of his teaching, and establishing his credibility as a teacher on the basis of his miracles. And we've said already that this naturally attracted people. Some for the teaching, yes, but primarily for the miracles primarily for the opportunity to be healed, primarily for the opportunity to be blessed in some specific way. And so many in this group that now follow him are desperate people. These are really the the dregs of the society that are following Jesus around, the lepers, the lame, the most poor. That's the crowd that James and Andrew and Peter and John are all watching approach them with Jesus in the lead. And they come upon these fishermen and Jesus asks one of the fishermen to allow him to go out on one of his boats. And you have to see the sensibility of this, obviously, if you understand the nature of this crowd and their desperation. Because remember, this is the same Peter now that was in the home with Jesus when he healed his mother-in-law. This is the same Andrew, the same James, the same John. They've already met him. They've probably gotten to know him a little bit. And they've begun to see him pretty much like most of the folks in that region see him. He's the traveling rabbi. You know, here he comes again. And he does miracles, and he's got the power of God, and he's got great teaching, but he's sort of a local figure now. And as he approaches them, once again, it's not a surprise. It's not as though they've never seen him before, of course. They simply recognize who he is, and here we go again with the crowd. And so he says, let me go out on your boat. And I imagine they're all a bit amused at this whole scene, and they can appreciate that he wants to get some distance from these people. Who wouldn't? In their minds, who wouldn't? This is a crowd you really don't want to spend a lot of time with in their minds. And so, as they have become accustomed to seeing him 
always surrounded by this people, they're probably not surprised at all at his request to get on the boat. And they say, sure. So we see in this scene, James, uh, rather, uh, Peter and Andrew get in their boat with Jesus and probably push off just far enough that the people aren't going to be inclined to get wet and follow any further. But yet he's within earshot. He's now standing in a boat probably maybe 10, 15, 20 yards offshore. And the crowd now presses up only as far as the water edge. And so Jesus has had this chance now to escape, to put some distance between himself and the crowd. And now sitting in this boat, floating, and having now a platform from which to speak, the scripture tells us he starts teaching the word again. He starts teaching this crowd once again. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus felt it was so important that he be able to teach these people the word of God? That he actually took the step of distancing himself from the very people who wanted nothing more than to be right up against him. Pressing against him, we've been told in the scripture. I mean, when he's there in their midst, he's completely accessible to them. There's no barriers. And they come right up against him. In fact, the scripture makes it clear. They come up and physically are against him. Touching him. So that he has absolutely no way to carry out any kind of discourse with the crowd at large for the distraction that these people are causing all around them. And of course, as they get closer, they probably get even more excited. And as the ones in the front get right up against him, the ones in the back want to become the ones in the front. And you can imagine the scene. And yet Christ doesn't want them to have that kind of access. It seems quite unusual, doesn't it? You would imagine that on the contrary, Christ would be looking to reach out to those people in a, in a very specific way. Why this distance? Now, you, you and I, and I'll, maybe I should speak for myself, me, I would feel very uncomfortable in that setting. As much as I might want to help those people, being on that boat and giving myself some space seems very comfortable to me. That, I can identify with that. But then again, I'm thinking that's not the right feeling. So I, I can't understand why Christ himself would want to do the thing I want to do because I'm assuming what I want to do is wrong. So why is Jesus doing it? And these people, what is it they really want? Why is the proximity at issue? Well, they want to touch him. They want to touch his clothes. They want to touch his body. They want him to touch them. The, the physical contact for them is the way they've identified his healing power. He's, he, he's seen, uh, they've seen him touch people and heal them. They've heard of people touching his garment and being healed. And they want to replicate that experience for themselves. Today, you'll see this as well with religions that have a unique individual that leads them. I'm thinking, for example, of the Catholic Church. Everyone who is a Catholic follower tends to want to get close to the Pope. They can't get that close anymore. It used to be, though, that he would come into crowds, people could touch him. And that was what they wanted to do, touch his garment, be touched by him, kiss his ring. And now that they can't do that, the next best thing is they seek after material objects that have had some indirect contact with him. They want a cross that he's blessed. They want water that he's blessed or that, you know, something he's touched or somewhere he sat. Oh, that chair now becomes important. You see that, nat that natural desire to want to find something material and physical to connect us to our object of worship. And that's part of what's going on here, of course. Scripture tells us, on the other hand, that faith is a trust in things unseen. That it is not the physical and the material, but it is spiritual. It is a belief specifically in God's Word, in His promises, in His Word that shows our faith. And I don't have any doubt at all that Jesus had a love and a compassion for these people. We know that. I'm sure that he wanted to reach out and contend and heal their infirmities, contend with their infirmities. 
I, I have no doubt at all that he would love to have seen their pain and their suffering removed. But I also have no doubt that he could have done it if he had wanted to do it. But instead he separates himself. Just enough that they can't get what they came to get. But close enough that they still get what he wants them to get. The whole while they're standing there on the shore, not going anywhere because he's tantalizingly close and because they assume he's got to come back sooner or later. That whole while he's got a captive audience and he gives them what? He gives them the Word of God. That's what he gives them, though that's not what they came for. Now I ask you, how many of them came for the Word of God, do you think? And maybe to be fair, let's say some did. But I would also tell you that most didn't. I'm willing to bet that most came for simply the immediate relief of the suffering that they felt with a faith that Christ was the one who could take away that suffering. They wanted healing, of course. They wanted their needs met, of course. But what they got was the Word of God. What would have happened if Jesus had healed them? What would have happened if that entire crowd had pressed up against Christ and rather than separate himself in the way he did, what if he had said, all right, all right, you're all healed? Well, we know what would have happened because we see that example played out many other places in the Gospel. When he heals someone, they stand up or they, they become well in some sense and they rejoice, obviously. They praise God over it, obviously, and they run off telling the world about what just happened. Which all sounds good, but I want you to consider what they lost out in. Though they were healed physically, how many of them stayed behind to hear the Word of God? How many of them remained followers after they had got what they came to get? I would argue that they all left, they went home celebrating, but because they were healed and content in their flesh, they were not seeking anymore the spiritual things that truly mattered. And would that have been love in the truest sense? Would, have healed, would healing them in a physical way and then allowing them to feel satisfied in that physical healing, running off to neglect the Word of God and the spiritual development that comes from it, would that have been true love in Christ's actions rather than give them what they want Christ left them wanting so that they would stay around for the word of God he withheld his healing in far more cases than he granted it of course across the three years of his ministry he left people with many more infirmities than he took away he left many more poor than he made rich he left many more with demons than he took away because his real interest was in healing the hearts and souls of men, not their flesh. And he knew that a man satisfied in the flesh would not seek after him any longer. You know, he does the same thing for us today. He does exactly the same thing for us today. We are not going to be spared all manner of trials and difficulties. That, that goes without saying. We are not going to see all our sicknesses healed. We're not going to see all our desires granted. We're not going to find satisfaction in this world. And Jesus, I'll tell you, is not particularly concerned if we achieve all that we want to achieve. That's not his first concern for us because what we want is typically not good for us. And we're not going to receive everything we want. We're not going to lead a trouble-free life. But we have to remember he has the power to grant us those things. It's not that he can't. It's that he won't. And he won't because he knows us too well. If we get what we want, we won't get what we need. He's concerned with our spiritual development, our sanctification, in other words, our godliness, our knowledge 
and our obedience of the Word. But those things only come one way. They only come by time spent in God's Word. Those people at the shore, though they may not have realized it at the moment, were getting the true help they needed by being held captive by their fleshly needs so that they would give time and energy to listening to God's Word. And just as Jesus held that crowd at bay, literally, that's where the phrase comes from, holding someone at bay, just as He held them at bay so that they would be there to hear the Word of God, He does exactly the same thing for us today. We pray for our desires, our fleshly desires, our financial desires, our worldly desires, and He holds those desires at bay, largely, so that as we continue to seek after Him for those things, we'll give time and energy to hearing the Word of God, which will deal with the true issues of our spiritual need, though we may not even realize it. Perhaps He knows that, I guess, if He were to grant those things, we would just walk away leaving Him in the boat just as those people would have done had they all been healed. And just as He loved them too much to heal them of everything, He loves us too much to do the same thing. I've been convicted of late, and you've heard it in some of my other teaching, I'm sure, that the Word of God is not one of many things we do as Christians. It is not one of many resources. It is not one of anything. It is the only thing. Put everything else aside, study and learn the Word of God, and watch how all the other things you think you have to cultivate in your own power will simply naturally come as a product of a heart saturated by the Word of God. If you feel you don't pray enough, if you feel you don't give enough time in service, if you feel you don't witness enough, if you feel you don't live a godly life enough, all of those things are the product of somebody who studies and knows the Word of God. Though we may shortcut the process and try to get to the end without going through the the means to the end, we can do that, but it's short-lived, it has no power, and it's not lasting. You've got to go through the Word of God to be changed. God's impressed upon me the need of teaching His Word for that reason, studying it for that reason. And He even mentions in His own Word, Christ says it's like food. He says... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's like food. I would give you just a simple rule of thumb. If you seek after physical food some number of times in a given day, do at least as much seeking after the Word of God on that same day and watch what happens. If you eat three times a day, then find three times a day to spend in the Word of God. If you eat eight times a day, do the same. And if you eat once a day. The point is, treat it like you do food. Hey, look, it's time to eat again. Yes, it is. Where's your Bible? That, my friends, would be something that changes our lives. But we don't have the time for it in so many cases. So in verse 4, we see Jesus turn to Peter in the boat and ask him, as Jesus asked him to put his net back into the sea. And I want you to begin to think a little like Peter in this moment, sitting in that boat. At first, it must have been a pretty strange request from Peter's standpoint. I mean, after all, Luke makes the point. These men are halaleus, he calls them. Fishermen is the way it's translated. It means professional fishermen. You could say longshoremen. You, you, you use a term of your own, but it's not simply like you and I go out on the weekend fishing. We're talking about men whose life and profession and expertise was fishing. This was their business. In fact, we hear earlier or later in those same verses about how Andrew and Peter... And then James and John, they're each pairs of brothers, how they're partners. They're partners in business. 
This is a business venture. They both go out every day on their two boats fishing for fish so they can pay for their lifestyle. This is their income. And as, as experts in fishing, here's the rabbi, the teacher, who knows nothing about fishing, as far as they can tell, who tells them in the midst of the morning hours, throw your nets out. These nets are actually a special kind of net. They're called diktau, D-I-K-T-A-U. In the Greek, it means a large drag net, the kind you would set out with weights, let it fall kind of to the downward into the, into the water, and then you would take the ends with, they'd have ties on the ends on the corners, and then they would move their boat slowly and drag this giant net behind them, and that would just collect whatever fish were in the water in that region. It's the kind of fishing they used to do. And they just, Peter says, we've just done this all night. We've just done this all night. We haven't caught a thing. Uh, you know, let me explain how this works, Jesus. All right. As fishermen, we know this business. And if you don't get any fish overnight, when that's the prime time, well, we aren't going to get anything now. You know, he's kind of being polite. Kind of like you would do if you're at your workplace and some visitor comes up to your desk and tries to tell you how to do your job and you know they've done nothing like what you do in their whole life and you politely just tell them they're an idiot, basically. That's what Peter's doing to Jesus right here. He's basically saying, uh, nice idea, but let me tell you why that won't work. But then he says he's going to do it anyway. I mean, he's skeptical. He's clearly not believing it's going to work, but then he obeys sort of in a nice, kind, almost condescending way, I have to imagine. I think this is also so typical of us. Even, even when we're prepared to obey God, even when we heard him tell us to do something, we know it's him, we know what we're supposed to do, but yet it seems completely nonsense, completely wrong. It doesn't appeal to our own thinking at all. We'll do it many times, not always maybe, but most of the time, let's say, if we know it's God, we'll feel some inclination to want to obey, but we still do what Peter did, don't we? If not out loud, at least in our minds, we still feel the need to let Jesus know that his direction is pointless. We still feel the need to tell God, okay, I'll do it, but this is not going to work. The reason is because when we finally try it and it fails, we don't want to be blamed. We're, it's kind of an upfront disclaimer. Okay, I'll do it, but I'm just going on record, this isn't going to work. So then when it doesn't, told you so. So at least we feel right about being wrong. At least we have some sense of, I knew what was going to happen anyway. It's this pride. Pride creeps in even when we obey, it seems. But consider this. Peter's earlier failure to catch any fish that night when he went out was all a part of God's plan. So that now, when Jesus tells him to do it against all good sense, and it works, and works beyond anyone's imagination, God can get all the more glory for having been seen as the one who brought the fish. So, remember, Peter's the expert fisherman here. Christ is just the teacher. But as God, he controls whether Peter catches fish night or day. And I would tell you that he held back the catch in that night so that it would be available for him in glory that morning. And here again, we're like Peter. How often do we experience failure in some task, then hear God tell us, try again. But we're ready to tell God, I just did it, it didn't work. How is doing it again going to make any difference? I once heard a man define insanity as doing the same thing a second time and expecting a different result. That's insanity according to one person's perspective. I would call that faith because if you're doing it in response to God's calling, 
then maybe you ought to look at your earlier failure as God setting you up for this future success under His glory rather than your own. It's a challenging notion, it isn't. We hesitate to obey because we can't bear the thought of facing failure another time and because we think we know better. We're experts in our own lives, right? About what we should and shouldn't do. And then God gives this direction that seems completely counter to what we think is good, but He says His ways are not our ways. It could very well be the fact that He gave us failure at an earlier time so that He could give us success in His timing. We so easily forget that both our successes and our failures rest with God, that He controls both. So if He's in control of whether we succeed or whether we fail, ultimately that means His failures are part of His plan. Our failures, rather, are part of His plan. So we obey regardless of what we think will happen. Well, then in verse 6, Peter immediately finds his net holding so much fish it's about to break. This is an old story. We've heard this told many times, I'm sure. But let's see it again in maybe a fresh view. Peter and Andrew on the boat throwing out this big net. These drag nets were quite large. And as soon as it hits the water, it's heavy and it's pulling the boat down. And he calls to to, uh, James and John on the shore... Get in your boat and get out here. Help. They get out to about the point of where these fishermen are. They begin to share in the load in calling up these fish and putting them into the boats. We're told that both boats now are absolutely full with fish. This is an extraordinary catch. This is nothing like any of them have ever seen, I guarantee you. And then Peter's reaction. His reaction is actually exactly what you would expect. His reaction is the natural result of what just happened. He knows immediately he's just seen a miracle. This is a miracle. This is not just an extraordinary good day. There is, I guarantee you no one in their lifetime had ever pulled up this much fish, much less that quickly, much less this time of day. And after all, as a professional fisherman, he knows the difference between what's natural and what's supernatural. He sees this clearly as a supernatural result. I would argue this would be sort of like here in San Antonio, having... A, a major road construction project finish on time and on budget. We would, just, we would call that supernatural, just knowing the, the reality of the way things work here. So at that moment, Peter recognizes instantly he's witnessed God at work. Now, I don't know that you can go so far as to say he knew Jesus was God. There's evidence as we go through the Gospels that that was a, an understanding that came late to Peter. So at this point, it's, it's enough to say that he recognized God just did something through this teacher, if nothing else. And he's been in the presence of God's work. And he has that unique experience of coming face-to-face with the power of God. And that face-to-face meeting with God has only one effect on any of us. It's a unique one. It brings us to that point of reminding us of our own inadequacies and our own sinfulness in the face of God's holiness, in the face of His power. It's a natural, unavoidable consequence of fallen sinful men coming into the personal encounter with their Creator. That's what happens to all of us. It's why, after all, that Adam and Eve hid in the garden when God walked in shortly after their sin. They're hiding for the same reason that Peter here is telling Jesus, leave me alone. Go away. You'd almost think he would embrace Christ at that point, right? Oh, you're God. Look what you've done. Give me a hug. You know? Or something. It's exactly the opposite. It's get away from me. And that's the natural feeling all men have, all women have, in that moment when they recognize who God is and what He can do, and then as a result they recognize their own sinfulness and their own inadequacy. 
the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men, they're so widely separated, they're so opposed to one another, that I would argue it's the most powerful force in the universe. God's holiness convicts us so much of our sinfulness that the only thing we can think in the moment is to run, is to be separated because of the consequence of coming into contact with that kind of a power. This is what the Bible says when it says that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword. That the Word of God cuts away, separates us from our own self-delusions. Our own view of self that thinks how great we are, how wonderful we are. That thinks how powerful we are, how capable we are. That view that we carry around to help us feel good all the days of our life, when we come into contact with God through His Word, in the case of Jesus, the Word made flesh, standing before Peter, showing God's power. When you get into that moment, seeing God for who He is, your first and only thought is to run, to separate, because you've had that that stripping away of all of those self-delusions. You can no longer stand there in the sight and in the power of God and carry on like you do normally to think you're okay, to think that everything about you is tight, wound right, you realize just how pitiful you are. And it's in that place that we finally see our sinfulness for what it is. I'll tell you, this same experience is not just important. It's not just an occasional thing. It is an absolute necessity for anyone to come to faith. If someone calls themselves a Christian, but they've never had that experience, they're only fooling themselves. We experience that, ex- that same experience that Peter had, we experience. We call it repentance. We call it coming to repentance prior to coming to salvation. It is a necessity that God's glory and power be shown to us and that it have the effect of convicting us of our sin before we realize we need anything. Before we're aware of our need for salvation, you have to be aware of how desperately poor and hopeless your situation is. And that hopelessness comes when you're brought into the power and the, the awareness of God and His holiness. That's the process of salvation. It begins with repentance. Those who have never had this experience, who've never become aware of their own sinfulness, they've never repented of anything, or at least not of anything that mattered, not in the general sense of their sinfulness, that those people, therefore, have never come to face, face to face with their sinful nature. They've never repented, therefore, of that nature and therefore they've never truly received salvation. They are merely playing Christian if they make that claim at all. And here's Peter. He's aware of his sinfulness. He's without a solution, at least in the moment. And so his only thought is, leave me. But Jesus doesn't do that, of course. Rather than leave, he makes a demand of Peter. He says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. That offer carries a certain amount of irony if you think about it. Here's a man whose profession is catching live fish in his own power so that he can make them dead. Now he's going to be one who would catch dead men in the power of God so that he can bring them to life spiritually. It's a complete opposite. Can you imagine Peter's first thoughts as he's bowing down in the boat trying to figure out how he's going to escape from this man who has the power of God. And he's just heard Christ say, I'm not going to leave. In fact, you're going to come with me. You're going to become a part of what I'm doing. And consider also for a moment, 
Peter just received what was effectively a small fortune in fish. I mean, his business just had a banner day. They probably on an average day would have collected enough fish that they could sell it and maybe live off that money for a day or two. It was a constant kind of hand-to-mouth existence. They might bring in a small quantity of fish, save some for themselves, sell the rest, and go back fishing the next day. These boats are full of fish. If he brought this fish to market, he'd probably have enough money to live on for the year or more. He is now coming to, you know, the, the, the ships come in for him and his business, so to speak. And Jesus just said, so what? Walk away from it. Come with me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And I, I have to believe he'd be astounded at that suggestion. Look at how he responded, though, in verse 11. He says, When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I can specifically remember, as a young man, probably in my early teens, I can specifically remember reading these Gospels and reading this particular verse. Now, I wasn't a believer at the time, which would explain why I wouldn't understand it, but, but I do remember being just struck by how improbable it was that people would actually just stop what they're doing in midstream, in, in midlife, and just walk away. It almost, it, to me, it almost undermined the credibility of the story a little bit. It seemed too like a, almost like an Aesop's fable kind of ending. It, did, it didn't make sense. It didn't ring true. Does somebody actually stop everything in the middle of life, drop their possessions on the shore and walk away? Is that really what these men did? I mean, didn't they give any thought to it? This is a pretty radical thing. When you stop and say, well, gosh, you know, that's a great offer. Thank you. I need to go think about this. I'll get back to you tomorrow. I mean, that would have seemed sensible, right? And, and how could they leave everything so easily? Wouldn't, wouldn't a decision of this magnitude at least deserve a modicum of thought and consideration? Wouldn't a responsible thing for them to do in this moment be to at least give you know, some consideration of whether they want to go through with this? Because after all, the last thing Jesus should want is someone to agree and then five steps into it say, oh, you know, I, I, I should have thought this through. Uh, it's not really going to work out after all. I've got to go back. Right? Even Jesus himself, and later in the Gospels, particularly in Luke 14, he, he says this, he says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You remember that, right? Most of you probably. So, taking Jesus' own advice, shouldn't these fishermen have counted the cost before choosing to join Christ? Before just dropping everything? Well, the answer is they did. I mean, that's the answer. The answer is they did exactly that thing. These men had seen and heard Jesus before back in Peter's home. They knew him. They knew what he was teaching. They knew that he was more than, than a mere man. Whether he was God or not may not have been fully understood at the time, but they knew he was something different. They knew his power. And I believe they had counted the cost. See, the problem is not that we don't count the cost, in my view. The problem is we count and we recount. And then we recount again. And we just keep counting rather than doing anything. We're too busy trying to assess the pluses and minuses of obeying Christ in any given moment that we have analysis paralysis, the term is, right? We won't do anything because we're too busy trying to figure out whether we should do anything. I really believe that's more our struggle. I don't see many people give their life over to Christ 
sell all their possessions and go off to the other side of the world and become missionaries and then get there and realize, oh, gee, that was a bit impulsive and rash. I probably shouldn't have done that. Oh, yeah, maybe it happens. But that's not our major problem, is it? Our major problem is not thousands of missionaries in in other parts of the world who find themselves there and then realize they jumped too soon. No, our problem is millions of people sitting in their homes doing nothing. Effectively, nothing. Because we're too busy counting whether or not we can afford to follow Christ. Jesus goes on in Luke 14, that same part of Luke where he says, count the cost. In 14.33, though, he says this. He says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, at first glance, we say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that if I own anything at all, I'm excluded from being his disciple? Well, in one sense, yes. And in another sense, no. He's not talking in Luke 14 about all Christians. That's self-evident when you go back and you read the context. He's talking to his disciples and he's talking specifically of a life of ministry. There are those within the body of Christ who are called into ministry and then there are those who are not. Those who are not are no less obligated to hear the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, to be able to teach it and to live by it. But they are not necessarily required to devote themselves to a life of following Christ in the same way that those who are called in the ministry will be. Like, for example, the apostles. Not all who followed after Jesus and heard his teaching were designated apostles. Not all, not all of them Christ called to follow after him following his death and go out and preach the word. That was a different level of calling. It was the calling of an apostle. But to do that, yes, you have to give up everything. To follow him in ministry, there is no looking back. There is no one foot in one world, one foot in the other which is one of the struggles I'm dealing with, as you might imagine. Being willing to drop everything and follow Christ is a prerequisite in the kind of ministry that the apostles would have and the kind of ministry that anyone called in the same way should have. But for those who are merely called to be Christian, to be a light in this world, without necessarily going to the next step of becoming a full-time person in ministry, the requirements are a little different. The requirements don't extend to the same level that they did for these apostles. These men did exactly as Christ said they would do because they had counted the cost, they recognized the calling, and nothing else mattered. Nothing else appealed to them in the same way. And their willingness to turn from everything that they valued in their life is proof of their own recognition of that calling and their willingness to follow it. I would tell you, though, that our following of Christ today doesn't demand much less I mean, in other words, if we're going to put these two different callings on a scale, they're a lot closer together than you probably realize. Though the one who's called into ministry has the ultimate expectation to put nothing above Christ, to leave everything as necessary and to do as God directs, the one who's not called into ministry is probably not given a whole lot more freedom than that. You're not necessarily going to have a job in ministry. You'll have a job outside in the secular world but your possessions should not own you. Your desire for wealth and riches should not drive you. Your concern over whether it comes today and is gone tomorrow should not worry you. And so in that sense, you're only one step removed from full-time ministry if you think about it. And yet, our hearts should be almost exactly the same. I would also say that if your life today feels like a struggle for holiness or a struggle to overcome sin, if you 
it seems, can't find the comfort and the peace that Christ promises in the Gospel to those who follow Him. If, it, if you read it, but you don't identify with it. I think it's a true testimony of the weakness in our church today that there is probably nothing more difficult in the minds of most Christians today than the thought of leaving behind all our wealth and all our security if called upon to follow and obey Christ. That, that strikes terror into the heart of a Western Christian, unlike anything else, I think. And if you begin to wonder why the Christian walk is always, it seems, more slogans and testimonials than truly life lived out, I'll tell you it's because we're living the life of that fisherman. In many ways, we're just like those fishermen. We go to work every day, we provide for ourselves, the teacher comes along one day, explains to us how the Word of God can change us, and maybe even calls us to drop everything, and we don't. We get back in that boat, and we go right back out, and we fish the next day. And He will not let us feel fulfilled in the face of a disobedience to a calling. And it doesn't have to be a calling into ministry necessarily. It could just be a calling into a life of greater holiness and devotion to Him. A life of greater dependence upon Him. Maybe we should try what Peter did, as radical as it sounds. Maybe we should try one day leaving everything on the shore and then see what happens next. Leaving behind a life that we had when He found us and replacing it with a life that He has for us. Now, in each of our cases, that will be a little different. In my case, I believe ultimately it will lead to a walking in ministry full-time as He provides. For all of you, but that's not necessarily the calling. But consider what I said earlier. Where does your devotion and commitment and desire of the Word of God and of study and teaching and preaching or just witnessing on the basis of the Word of God, where does that fit into your calendar? Where does it fit into your schedule? Where does it fit into your priorities? You don't have to become a preacher. But if it is the case that one day a week you sit under the teaching of the Word, six days of the week it doesn't cross your mind, and even the hour you're here, half the time you're thinking about something else, may I suggest that the struggles in your life are directly proportional to your time and devotion in the Word of God. I know in my life, spending as much time as I've had need to in order to teach it, um, God's dredged up all kinds of nonsense that I need to get rid of and deal with. Not all of which I have. But if nothing else, He's kept my priorities straight. He's helped me set time in my week for what really matters. So that there are any number of TV shows I've never watched and never will and don't know all that I've missed. But I've read things in the Word of God that I'm so glad I know. That come back to mind when I need to know them. And I've been there when someone else had a specific question or a need or an issue in their life and God put us together for just a moment. But their need and what I knew out of the Word of God matched up perfectly. And I was able to be used by God for that purpose in that moment. How many of those did I miss along the way because I wasn't in the Word of God? That's what I worry about. So, take uh, from what we learned today, if nothing else, that Christ will call those He desires in service and He will bring the Word of God to those who come for other reasons because it is the Word of God that changes and it is a life devoted to Him that brings satisfaction. All else is simply time wasted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by the Word we are shown Your power, Your glory, and at the same time, Father, our own sinfulness and our inadequacies 
Father, I pray that the world and all its priorities and all that it teaches would not be what stays with us. That we would not stand and listen to the crowd and consider what they think, but we would rather, Father, listen to You alone and to Your Word, to Your Son. There are many days, Father, I know when things conspire to pull us out of our walk with You that call us away from living out the things we've learned. Just call us out from any opportunity to learn at all. But Father, there is nothing that compels us. It is merely, Father, our choices and desires. In fact, Father, so often those things that pull us out of the Word are things we chose ourselves at an earlier time and now feel obligated to follow. Give us the courage, Father, to drop everything, to start again, as it were, to reset priorities, to take a second look at those things we've said are important in our lives and reconsider whether, in fact, we've given things the right priority. And then, Father, as we devote ourselves to Your Word, to studying it, to teaching it, to living it, Father, I hope and pray that You would give us even just a small measure of success. Father, just an encouragement somewhere along the way that we might see the effect that a life devoted to You and to Your Word might have. And we might understand, Father, that it is a power in us to change, to contend with those things we can't contend with on our own. That it will give us direction in so many times, Father, when we did not know what to do. It will give us comfort, Father, even amongst our trials. And then, Father, as we experience that, that encouragement You might give, let it light a fire. Let it be the thing that propels us to even greater devotion, Father. For we know, Father, that You desire that our service to You be by a commitment in our life to doing Your will. Not to words of praise one day a week, Father. Not to the tithing that we might choose to do on occasion. Not to any of the things that we may put on our checklist, but rather, Father, to a life devoted to You in all that we do, that we may be pleasing to You in that way. And then, Father, if You call us into ministry in some form, I pray, Father, we would have the courage to leave everything at the shore as Peter did, Andrew did, and follow You wherever You take us. I ask that, Father, not just for myself, but for this group corporately. For whatever plans You have, Father, let us be obedient and follow. And we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.